hear God's word to you. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the, sweet of, the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and errant word. May he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. You may be seated.
Mm-mm-mm. Let's look to the Lord for help. Father, such a heavy, heavy chapter, and yet such insight into the sad human condition we find ourselves in today, as well as the only hope of man. It's all here, this early chapter of Genesis. But God, without eyes to see, without ears to hear, without true saving faith that embraces the truth, both the warnings and the promises, we, it'll just go over us, Lord, like water off the back of a duck. So we pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would take this word and drive it deep into our very beings, that we might believe you and live for you and live under your authority by faith, trusting in the seed of the woman. We ask it in Jesus' name that you'd open our eyes. Amen. Amen. Last time, some of you would, will remember, we started looking at what we call the great fall of man. It's all here in Genesis 3. And last time, uh, we dealt more with how the fall came about. And now we're going to look at sin and its consequences. What are the consequences of that fatal decision such a long time ago where Adam and Eve chose to live in God's world without God right we're going to look at the consequences so I thought I'd start with this um, past a couple few days ago actually my wife and I were able to go on a date night um, those of you who are married it is good to still do some date nights when you're able and we went and actually saw the movie Bohemian Rhapsody. Um, growing up as a teen, believe it or not, my favorite band was Queen. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, even though there are definitely issues, moral issues there that uh, as I was growing up, um, it didn't bother me as much as they do now. Um, I still went to see the band that I um, had grown to love as a child and teen. And um, there's one of their songs believe it or not, that actually comes very, very close <laughs> to being biblical. <laughs> believe me, I had to look hard. No, but this song, as it came to my mind, I thought, you know, this is actually literally the perfect song to start to open up the sermon this morning. And it's actually called, Is This the World We Created? And uh, Brian May and Freddie Mercury wrote it. Um, they were finishing up their album called The Works, and they, they had like one more spot for one song, and they didn't have the song, so they said, let's write one. And unbelievably, this is what came out, and I think it really expresses well um, the human condition. So just listen to it for a moment, the lyrics. Just look at all those hungry mouths we have to feed. Take a look at all the suffering we breed. So many lonely faces scattered all around, searching for what they need. i got to interrupt. Just listen to our prayer times. Is this the world we created? What did we do it for? Is this the world we invaded against the law? So it seems in the end, is this what we're all living for today? The world that we created. You know that every day a helpless child is born who needs some loving care inside a happy home. 
Somewhere, a wealthy man is sitting on his throne, waiting for life to go by. Is this the world we created? We made it on our own. Is this the world we devastated right to the bone? If there's a God in the sky looking down, what can he think of what we've done to the world he created? Is that not Genesis 3? And I said almost biblical because he says, if there's a God, we know better. And apparently in his heart, in their hearts, they know better too. There is a God in the sky and he is looking down. And we don't have to guess about what he thinks about what we've done to the world he's created. We actually see, and we'll continue to see next week as well, the devastation that was wrought by that one fatal choice to live, to ignore God's word, to contradict it, and to try to be our own God, right? You will be like God, and that's what we wanted. And so we brought this upon ourselves. Now next week I want to mention, you'll notice I'm going to skip, you'll probably wonder throughout the sermon if I don't tell you this, I will skip all the issues between man and wife. And you're going to say, why is he skipping that? Because guess what? We're doing a whole sermon on that next week. So don't, don't worry about that. Don't think, wow, pastor's avoiding. No, I'm not avoiding. It is so important that I'm going to dedicate a whole message to it. So we're getting there. But for this morning's purposes, this is what we're going to see. And we'll get as far as we can. Let's look at the real time. By eating from the tree that God told them not to eat from, our first parents plunged us into sin and misery. We're going to see four things. The first thing is their sin brought about shame. There was no shame before this. Secondly, their sin brought about avoidance of blame. Can I get a witness? Anybody who has kids knows what that's all about. You know, my friend used to say, if I ever find that guy I don't know, I'm going to kill him. Third one, their sin made work a pain. Talking about getting jobs. Yeah. And last of all, their sin got them kicked out of Eden, never to return again. I had to say again to make it rhyme with the rest of them. And that's how they say it in Canada. So, but, so that's what we're going to take a look at. Their sin, first of all, brought about shame. Look at verse 7. And by the way, I do want to mention this. All of these things relate to what God said when he made that command. The day you eat of it, you shall what? Surely die. Surely die. Satan contradicted that. The woman fell for it. The man with open eyes went for it. And sure enough, death includes all these things. It's not just physical death. But as we see later, it does include physical death. But the first thing we see is that their sin brought shame. Look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now, the very first consequence of Adam and Eve's sin, their choice to disbelieve God's word and take and eat of the tree that God commanded them not to, was a sense of shame. Their eyes were open. Listen, it's important. It says in the text, their eyes were open all right, but instead of getting this greater feeling of freedom and of intimacy, they realized what? That they were naked and they grabbed for some 
fig leaves, whatever was near them, to make a makeshift, makeshift covering in order to cover themselves. And listen, to hide themselves from one another's gaze. And of course, from someone else's gaze, as we'll see in a moment. Now think about how pathetic this scene must have been. Right? Imagine taking some measly fig, fig leaves and thinking that that was going to be sufficient to cover your nakedness. And I want you to see something from the text. Prior to the fall, when they were still upright and in the state of innocence and righteousness, according to Genesis 2.25, listen to this. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt what? No shame. You notice the contrast. There was no shame in the garden before the fall. They were pure, they were naked in front of each other and they were open with one another and there was great, great intimacy. Gloriously open. The very thing to this day we strive for in marriage, right? In intimate relationships is to know each other deeply and for real and be able to stare one another in the eye, right? And see each other as we really are. But now what? Up go the walls. First time in history. On go the coverings of mistrust. Uneasiness with themselves. Uneasiness with one another came pouring in like a flood. Derek Kidner puts it this way. Sin's proper fruit is shame. The couple, now ill at ease together, experienced a foretaste of fallen human relations in general. And here's the thing, not only were they ill at ease with one another, but for the first time in the history of the world, man and woman were ill at ease in the presence of their loving, gracious, good creator. And one of the, the horrible effects of the fall as well is that our shameometer is broken today. That even shame don't work right. Because we're ashamed when we shouldn't be, right? You ever have to tell somebody, don't be ashamed of that. There's nothing wrong with that. And then other times we should be blushing and we're not. That's how messed up we are. You know? The notice, how do they respond when they hear the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day? And it's one of them, I, I love that phrase because it, it definitely, some commentators will say things like, you know, most likely it seems like there's some evidence that possibly God would meet them during the cool of the day every day, you know, prior to the fall. I don't think possibly. Obviously he did. This was a normal thing. They had great fellowship together. You know, that, that nice in the cool of the day, having that beautiful walk with God, smelling the roses. That was their life. They, they had the life of Riley, as my mom used to say. They had it. This time they hear the sound of the Lord of the garden. Look what happens in verse 8. They hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Again. You really think you're going to hide from God? You know, we, we, one of my, the cats I love the most in my life, Edmund was his name. Uh, of course, after Edmund from The Lion, The Wish, The Wardrobe, right? But I remember when he would do something naughty, he would go under this little glass table, okay? He would stick his head out and his butt would be hanging out. And it's kind of like, uh, hello, we can see you. And that's kind of Adam and Eve here. They think really you're, the trees are going to keep you, keep God from seeing 
Think about it this way. This hit me when I was studying it. They used to run to God in delight, right? And in anticipation. Now what? Now they're running away from him in dread. What a contrast. You know, in our day, we tend to blame God. But notice here, God didn't change. The same God that made them, that walked with them in the garden. But that's what sin does, doesn't it? causes us to avoid closeness, avoid honesty with one another, and to avoid, most of all, listen, to avoid God at all costs. Notice, what's the first thing that happens when we sin against God? What do we avoid right away? Prayer. We avoid, definitely avoid his word. Whoa, we don't want to hear this. But notice what else starts to happen. We don't go to church anymore to fellowship with the saints. Those are all telltale signs that something's not right. Don't you believe that lie that says that man is searching for God? You know, these, these TV shows, the search for God. He's not missing. Genesis 3 exposes that sentiment for what it is, complete nonsense. Who's hiding and who's seeking in Genesis 3? Man's doing the hiding. And notice, we'll see, God's doing the seeking. God's the seeker. Seeker-friendly church? It's God. Remember what Jesus said in John 3, 19 and 20, just to give you a little cross-reference. Jesus said, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved what? Darkness instead of light. Why? Notice, this is powerful. Because their deeds were evil. Hmm. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Boy, is this not a great commentary on Genesis 3. Adam and Eve ate from the tree they were commanded not to eat from, and they ran from the light for fear of what? That their deed would be what? Exposed. Dick Lucas puts it this way. The fall is pictured in this way, that we lose our desire for God, and in its place, we have a desire for the forbidden fruit and for the things of this creation without the Creator interfering. And that's precisely what happens when we lose our desire for God. There is still this great appetite within ourselves, an appetite that God implanted that can only be satisfied with feeding on the bread of life. And because we've lost our desire for God, now this is powerful, Therefore, we turn to the things of this world and we have an insatiable appetite for them, whether it's sex or power or money or whatever, and yet we're never satisfied. Is that not man? It's never enough. You know? Was it Rockefeller? Who was it that they, they said, how much more is enough? He said, a little bit more. Just a little bit more. So the effect, first effect of the fall is that man hid from God and one another. And listen, man has been hiding from God and one another ever since. Teenagers hiding from parents. Husbands hiding from wives, vice versa. And man hiding from the creator who loved them and made them. Second thing, their sin avo uh, brought avoidance of blame. Look at verse 9 and 10. 
But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Now, before I get into the blaming issue, look at this. When I read this, I honestly thought to myself, there are many times in life, and I bet you can relate to this, that I'm so glad that God's not like me. Amen. This is one of them. You notice what God does here? He graciously seeks man out. Do you notice that? He lovingly confronts Adam with the question, where are you? That wouldn't have been my response, right? My response is, you're just cut off, period. How dare you? Now, why would I use the adjective that God lovingly confronts Adam? Because let me tell you why. The all-knowing God obviously knows the answer to the question. A Lutheran commentator, H.C. Leupold, puts it this way. He says, God's not seeking information. His questions are pedagogic. In other words, he's trying to teach Adam something. In other words, he's prodding Adam to fess up and take responsibility for his sin. And we're going to see this even more incredible, how more incredibly this grace is, the grace of God, in chapter 4, when God even does that with Cain, who murdered his brother, tries to get him to see his evil ways and turn from them, and fess up and take... Listen, here's the thing, right? The thing that we try to do today is to get people to take responsibility for their choices. My hardest job, said the warden of a great penitentiary, a jail, is to convince youthful delinquents that they've done something wrong. Really, you're in a jail and it's hard to convince them they did something wrong. Why? Because it's somebody else's fault. It's always somebody else's fault. That's what God was trying to get Adam to see. Because here's the point. God's not being mean. He doesn't like to rub it in. Like I said, I'm glad he's not like me. But you won't be open, unto, open up to the cure. You won't be open to the cure unless you acknowledge you got a problem. Isn't that true with all addiction as well? Until you acknowledge, I got an issue. You're not going to seek help. You're not going to be open to the help that's available to you. But unfortunately, Adam and his wife would have none of it. And so let the blame games begin. Look at verse 12. The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, what? The serpent deceived me and I ate. Talk about passing the buck. Now listen, fallen, I want you to see the skill here. Fallen men, we are so skilled at this this shifting blame, blame shifting, that listen, Adam throws both God and his wife under the bus in one sentence. Did you notice that? Whose fault is it? It's the woman, zinger, that you gave me. Two for one. I only had a couple of long quotes, and I got another one here. This one's from Luther. Martin Luther, he's so good on this chapter, I was so pleasantly surprised. This is what he says. From this we learn how great is the evil of sin. 
unless God helps and calls the sinner, he will forever flee God, try to excuse his sin by lies, and add one wrong to another until he ends in blasphemy and despair. Now listen, this is good stuff. Rather than blame himself, he will put the blame for his transgression on God. Isn't that powerful? Adam should have said, Lord, I have sinned. But that he refused to do so, ultimately he made God the cause of his transgression. The greatest folly Adam regarded as the highest wisdom. But we too are guilty of this folly when we sin. We rather accuse God than to confess ourselves guilty. Just as Adam said that he hid himself because he heard the voice of God, thus making the Lord responsible for his flight. Man, does Luther not hit the nail on the head here? I cannot tell you how many times I've dealt with folks who are in rebellion. And when, when push comes to shove, they end up saying, it's God's fault. God made me like this. God didn't stop me. God allowed this person to do such and such. Listen, we cannot control our circumstances, but as we all know, we have a responsibility how we respond to those circumstances. And I think it's interesting. I'm, I'm going to develop this more next time, so I'm just going to I'm going to throw it out there like a thread, just to pique your interest. But we'll talk about it next time in more detail. Notice something here. Ultimately, who's responsible? Adam, not the woman, not the serpent, but Adam. Because what's very interesting, if you notice last week, it was the devil and Eve talking back and forth. And then for one little verse, you got Adam in there, right? But notice, after they take and eat, who does God go to first? Adam, where are you? Wow. We'll talk more. See, I just pique your interest. Come next week. We'll talk more about that. But man has been refusing to take responsibility for his own choices and his own actions ever since the garden. When will we ever learn the devil didn't make us do it? Amen. It wasn't our parents' fault. You know, that's another one. It's my parents. It's my genetics. Yeah. It's my DNA. It's my dysfunctional environment. And of course, those things don't make it any easier to live a holy life. I agree with that. That just shows you how deep the rabbit hole goes of sin, doesn't it? All right, third thing, and these things won't be as long as the first two, so don't be too nervous. Notice here the third thing, third consequence. Sin made work a pain. All right? Cursed is the ground because of you through painful toil to eat of it all the days of your life. Verse 18, it'll produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow will you eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. From, for dust you are, and in the dust you will return. Now, here's the cool thing. Before the fall, as hard as it is to envision, work was not a punishment. Work was an awesome thing. It was God saying, I'm going to share my purpose. I'm going to share, I'm, you're going to find significance in working with your hands and being a part of glorifying me through your work. It was a happy enterprise of cultivating the land and enjoying God's pleasure in their work. 
But now because man had rebelled against God's word, the ground that was once blessed is now cursed by God. Only through painful toil will we eat of it. It's no longer going to cooperate with man, but rather it's going to produce thorns and thistles. Listen, David Atkinson puts it this way to summarize quickly for us. He says, the two earlier divine commands to be fruitful and to till the ground are now both occasions for misery. Isn't that interesting? Be fruitful and multiply and till the ground. That was a blessing. Now they're both, they're a cause of misery. We'll deal with the fruitful one next week. But now all we need to see is that man's been groaning under the struggle to earn a living ever since. One more thing in terms of consequences, and I cannot end the sermon without talking about it. Their sin got them kicked out of Eden, never to return again. We see that in verses 20 to 24, where you have the word there, man was banished from the garden. Doesn't that word just bring a chill up your spine? To be banished from the garden? When I was young, I had a favorite uncle. Maybe some of you have favorite uncles. It was my uncle Pete. He was born and raised in Sicily. So you see why I really liked him. He was, he was a rascal. He was the life of the party. Now, now, parents here, I know you probably hate the way I tease your kids. Well, you can thank my uncle Pete. Because my uncle Pete was a teaser. He was a buster. Always oh, to drive my mom crazy. He loved driving us nuts. And, and, but you know what? For that very reason, the older I got, the more I loved him. Because he actually paid attention. He was, he was a, a, just a real fun uncle. Well, most of the time we had such a great relationship. And like I said, even though he would tease, uh, I would, his, his grandson was my cousin. And I would go to his house because my, my cousin lived with him. And um, we would play together all the time. And one day, we got outside. I don't know, elementary school age maybe, and we were playing around in my uncle's car. We didn't have the keys, but we, we were in the car and we had the door open and there was, there was a tree right next to the car, next to, next to the driveway, and I hit the emergency brake off. So the car started backing up down the driveway. And literally, I could have gotten killed. I slipped out and I almost got pinched between the door and the huge tree would have not been a good picture. I somehow got my way out of that before it happened, but the door hit the tree and bent the door backwards. And the car went, wee! It was not fun. Well, my uncle came out, and I'd never seen him like this before. He screamed at the top of his lungs, get out of here, I don't want to see you. And I remember just running home. And I lived at least, I don't know, maybe a mile away from his house. But I literally ran home, and I remember going into my room, throwing myself on the bed and literally in despair crying uncontrollably because I was just banished from my uncle's presence. And I'll, to this day, I've never felt that feeling ever like that other than when I came to know Christ and he showed me my sin. But to be banished, to think that, that my loving uncle, the one I was so close to, would literally banish me from his loving presence, it brought me to despair. And I was a little kid, so I thought, you know, this was the end of that. Well, that 
my brothers and sisters, was all, that's barely, barely a taste of what Adam and Eve must have felt. Think about it. When God banished them. And you know what? Here's the point. We're still feeling those effects. And the people that you see out there that, that don't know Jesus, chilling to think about it. But obviously the story doesn't end there. We're going to go back up for a moment to where God begins to bring the punishment. And it's Genesis 3.15. And we're going to see, thankfully, the story doesn't end with the first Adam. Even way back here, God brings this little ray of hope that shines so brightly in the darkness of a second Adam. A second Adam who, when the devil says, turn these rocks into sto these stones into bread, what does he do? Get behind me, Satan, for it is written. He doesn't ignore God's word. He upholds it three times. Cursed are you above all the livestock, God says to the serpent, and all the wild animals. You will crawl in your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is the first proclamation of the gospel. This is the promise that, yes, the devil is going to strike the son of the woman's heel. And we know where that happened. We're about to celebrate the Lord's Supper. It happened on the cross. Just when the devil thought he had won, as it were, it was the very cross of Jesus that did what? Crushed his head. And it's very interesting that there would be enmity between this, this serpent and this woman who were having this nice little talk in the garden. Did you notice that before? And now God says, oh, I'm going to mess that relationship up right now. Because there's going to be enmity. And someday, the very woman that you deceive, Satan, she's going to give birth to another Adam. And this Adam ain't going to fail this time. This Adam is going to bring the victory. This Adam is going to bring us not back to the garden, but better. He's going to bring us back to a new heavens and a new earth. Now listen, here's the, here's the thing. The gospel doesn't remove all these sorrows and these difficulties completely that we read about in Genesis 3. It gives us a, per, a partial reversal of these things, and we'll talk more about that next time. But it gives us a sure hope of a complete reversal of these things where there will be no more banishment, there'll be no more shame, there'll be no more passing blame, just intimate fellowship with God and one another for all eternity. Amen. Now listen, as we go to take the Lord's Supper, I'm going to close with this wonderful quote from Derek Kidner. Referring back to what Eve did, he says this, She took and ate, so simple the act, so hard its undoing. And he ate, meaning Adam, led as the woman had been instead of leading. Now listen to this powerful thing. God will taste poverty and death before take and eat become verbs of salvation. devil said, take and eat. And we, we swallowed the lie, didn't we? Jesus lays down his life, gives up his body and his blood, and now he says, take and eat. 
For this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. If you today find yourself far from God, you're more worried about what your friends think, if Christianity's cool. This is the day you've heard the good news. God says, shall we be friends? You want back in. Jesus made the way back in. And it's by not trusting in your own, try to cover up yourself with some fig leaves. <laughs> Ain't going to work. It's by being clothed with the righteousness of another. You know what God did at the end here too? He killed a sacrifice and clothed Adam and Eve. That's what he's offering to do with you, for you in Jesus, if you would but trust in him. Put all your hope in him. Let's pray. Father, it's a sad story. It's a tragic story. It's a true story. But unless we see its severity, we will never appreciate the good news and the lengths that you went to to rescue us from it. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for experiencing banishment when you said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So that we could be forgiven and accepted back into the fold. Father, we pray that as we go throughout this week and as we see all the lonely people, that we would not be ashamed to point them to the only hope of true salvation from sin, the son of the woman, the second Adam, the savior of the world, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.